This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. You guys, tonight we are diving into, because of seven, the prayer week, and because of the series that we're in right now, what does it mean to be with Jesus? We're going to be spending the next few minutes talking about prayer. Um, now, there have been books and classes done on prayer. We're, we're not even going to attempt to explain all of it. We're going to come from a very unique direction tonight, uh, specifically on what can draw us to a place with prayer uh, that has to, that can draw us into intimacy and relationship with Jesus. Um, and so just the, at, right out the gate, that's our goal tonight. It's not to explain all of prayer. It's not to talk about how to get the best results in prayer. Um, all it is is how does prayer play a role in our connectedness and our relationship to God. Because um, prayer is a fascinating thing. Every religion in the world involves prayer. I remember uh, going to the Middle East a couple years ago, and I was in the Dubai airport going to use the restroom, and it looked like any airport that you'd walk into in, in, in America, except for as I was walking to the restroom, a bunch of guys were turning right into this other room, and I look, and at a certain time, a room filled with men were on their faces praying at this specific time in an airport. And I was like, whoa, this is, I've never seen this happen in an American airport ever. Um, and, and then I'm in Oman, which is um, city north in Jordan, and, and I'm there, and every few hours over these loudspeakers from the mosques, there would be this call to prayer, and the entire city would shift and would pray. And I'd never been in, in a world that was so governed by a rhythm of prayer. Um, and that's not unique to Islam. As a matter of fact, uh, Jewish religion has a very strong history in fixed hour prayer. This idea that prayer is not something you do when you feel like it. It's not something you do before the quiz you didn't study for, right? It, prayer is something that you do all the time. And I think and I think because as most followers of Jesus, there's a little bit of freedom and flexibility in prayer. It's left us with a sense of ambiguity of what do I do with prayer? Um, in the census a few years back, uh, it recorded that nine out of 10 Americans pray at least once a week. So that's higher than the amount of people that said they believe in God, which is funny. So more people are praying than believe in God. So there, there is this innate sense in us that we want to talk to something greater than us. And yet, when a private poll surveyed Christians, less than 10% said they feel like they could confidently pray. So everybody prays. Um, no one feels like they pray well. And so we have a little bit of a problem here. And in my guess, what we're going to talk about tonight it's not should we pray, because chances are most of you are, but it's rewiring our understanding of why we pray, who we're praying to, and where we pray from, uh, more than the nuts and bolts of how to just get what you want when you pray. No, no, this, is, this has to do, ultimately, I believe prayer's primary function is relational. 
Now, there are transactional elements to prayer. Hopefully, we pray, we ask, he shows up. But we have cheapened prayer into that's all it is. So um, what that has done for us is that has created a little bit of a dilemma and a hesitancy within us that we don't really know what to do uh, with prayer. And at the same time, we just can't escape it. There um, have been numerous studies done on the effects of prayer. Let me just read you a couple. This is by Herbert Benson, who is the head of Harvard Medical School. Uh, Not a believer, as far as I know, and did a study on people who pray. This was his finding. The relaxation response is released when people went into a state of prayer. It's a physiological state that shifts people from their fight, flight, or freeze state into a place of rest and ease. The act of prayer has shown an increase of certain helpful neurotransmitters which release dopamine, which in turn bring people into a place of relaxation, focus, motivation, and well-being. Lisa Miller, who's the director of psychology at Columbia University, says, It was found that people who pray regularly have a thicker cerebral cortex, which has been associated with less depression and anxiety. Also, studies have shown that people who pray have less heart attacks and recover quicker from heart surgery. So prayer has a direct result physiologically on us. There's something that we're drawn to. And, at the same, and this is what Paul's talking about in his letter to the Philippian church when he writes this. Don't be anxious about anything, right? I mean, just the most over, oversight statement ever. Like, what, really? Anything? Don't be anxious about anything? And his, and his kind of answer to this, he says, but in every situation, Pray. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So for Paul in this sentence, it seems that anxiety and prayer are against one another. That the welcoming of prayer into our life begins to dissipate anxiety. And the welcome of anxiety begins to crowd out prayer. And it's an interesting idea because a lot of conversations I've had with people recently is sometimes people have anxiety about prayer. And uh, John Tyson, who's a pastor in Manhattan, uh, came up with, with three things he finds people have anxiety about prayer about. And I thought this was brilliant. The first thing is that people have outcome anxiety, where they have a hard time praying because they have a hard time not getting the outcome they want. So they find themselves over time less and less even engaging in prayer. Maybe they prayed for someone they wanted to get well and they didn't. Maybe they prayed for a dream or a promotion and didn't happen. And over time, you find yourself feeling more anxious about the outcome so you don't even engage in prayer. Uh, There's another type of anxiety called motivational anxiety, which means that sometimes you want to pray, but then you start to question your motivation. Like, am I just asking that for selfish reasons? You know, is that really what God wants from me? Is that just my own? And so you kind of overthink it and you find yourself not praying. And lastly, there's, there's, there's God anxiety. And this one I think is the biggest. It's who in your understanding you're even talking to determines the amount and the posture in which you enter into that conversation. Well, I'm praying to God. What God? Jesus. Which Jesus? What attitude does he have when he's listening to you? What tone is in his voice when he speaks to you? And this is huge. I think this, this plays in and filters into not just our, our amount of prayer, but the types of prayer that we pray. 
The Journal of Psychology recorded that those who pray with a view of God who is loving and protective experience dramatic reductions in anxiety-related symptoms compared to those with no expectation of comfort or protection. I, re- I read that article this week, and I was just like, man, that, there are oftentimes, I'm sad to admit, where I pray and my expectation is slim to none. A protection of comfort, of result. I just, I'm doing it, I'm crying out, but, but my expectation level has a tremendous amount of what it has, what prayer is doing inside of me. And so you might be here today and you're just like, man, I, I don't know, I don't even know where to begin. Because sometimes I'm ready to pray and sometimes I, I'm ready to question. I'm in this, down, this dance between doubt and faith. And I just want to let you know, um, so is everyone in the Bible. So if you find yourself not knowing how to pray, what to pray, if you're praying from the right place, I just want to let you know you're in good company, right? Moses uh, would oftentimes pray how much he hated his job, uh, how much Israel was a stiff-necked people. He's the same person who prayed, show me your glory, Lord. Elisha, who has more recorded miracles than anyone in the, in the entire Bible, uh, also is a person who prayed down bears on a couple of teenagers who were making fun of him. Interesting contrast in his prayer life, right? Miracles and Maulings. It's a good book title. Um, uh, David, uh, read Psalm 73 sometime. And, and it's just this like, this earnest cry of everyone is doing better than me and, and, and these deep things and at the same time says, but there's no other place I'd rather, rather be than in your court. In this same poem, this same prayer. Um, Jesus had very different prayers that are recorded. He has the prayers of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has the prayers, not my will, but yours be done. I mean, Wherever you are, pray. Enter into There's something you were designed to, to, to press into, and that is a conversational, deeply relational connectivity with God. And if you're too afraid to step into that, you will miss out on the benefit I'm not just talking about results. I'm talking about you, your own soul's health. That happens when you pray. C.S. Lewis says, Let us lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. John Chapman says, Pray as you can, not as you can't. I just, I love that. And then lastly, this Philip Yancey has this quote. He says this, Most of my struggles in the Christian life circle around the same two themes. Why God doesn't act the way we want God to and why I don't act the way God wants me to. Prayer is the precise point where those themes converse. If prayer stands as the place where God and human beings meet, then I must learn about prayer. And so what I'd like to lay before you tonight is that we would move from a place of of our understanding of prayer as being a transactional act to a relational act. Uh, I think about my kids. My kids have no problem asking me for things all day long. Dad, dad, 
Dad, I mean, just so persistent. Whatever they want. Dad, can I have a sleepover? Uh, maybe. Talk to me in like 10 minutes. Okay. Uh, is it been 10 minutes yet? Dad, can I borrow your phone? Um, no. How about now? Dad, Dad, can I, get, can I get yogurt? Yeah, yogurt. Okay, you can have yogurt. Uh, Dad, can I get ice cream? No, why not? I mean, just all day long, my kids are requesting things from me and, and asking me. And, and I, want to, I, I love it. I love those things. But I would say this. If, that, if those were the only words that came out of my children's mouths, um, I would be grieved as a father. Although I never want them to stop requesting, I also desire a deeper conversation than purely a transactional, request-driven conversation. I want to know about their day. I want to know how they're feeling. I want to know their fears. I want to know when they have a bad dream. I want to know when, when, when they're excited about something. I, I want to know the heart of my children. And, and my hope is that they want to know my heart as well. And so um, if I were to compare my conversations with my children versus the conversations I have with my Heavenly Father, to be honest, we have a long, I have a long way to go. Because there's no inhibition in my children to ever open their mouth with me. And yet I find myself stopping or, or finding some other route to deal with my problems and f- f- just running to talk to my Heavenly Father. And that's, again, kind of the, the end goal tonight is that we would find ourselves, not, not with like how to pray to get results kind of talk. This is just, we were made to be in union and relationship with God. And one of the ways we, that God has given us a gift to do that is this ability to pray. So I want to read you a couple of, couple of stories that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. Um, that was all the introduction, by the way. Uh, Luke chapter 18. <laughs> Uh, We're going to start in verse 1. This is our text for the evening. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So that's Jesus' agenda. I want my apprentices, which hopefully we are, many of us in this room, to always pray and never give up. I'm going to tell them two stories. Here's the two stories Jesus decided to tell his disciples to encourage them in their prayer. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. It's a brave man right there. The the Greek word literally is similar to get a black eye. I mean, this guy is literally fearing that this this widow is going to come after him unless he just grants her the justice that she's longing. Kind Kind of a peculiar story. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's kind of the end of the first story, which I think is so interesting because I love this, that God's justice is not tied to the quickness in which he answers. 
He says, those who pray morning and night, and I, I, I believe pastorally, the lens that I see is we have become a people, we have become a church that prays in the morning, but if he doesn't answer by the afternoon, we're not going to pray at night. If we, if there's no sense of persistence and desperation. If God doesn't show up, then I guess God doesn't exist. If God doesn't show up, I guess he's not good. And that's not even a question in Jesus' mind. He says, why? No, no, no. That's a wicked judge. We have a just God. Will he not answer and hear those who cry? But this is the thing. Morning and night who do not stop crying out to him. And then he goes and tells his second story, directed not at his disciples, but more at the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day. He says, to some who are confident of their own righteousness, he looked down at everyone else. Jesus told this parable, this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. If you remember, these are two completely different people, spiritually speaking, socially speaking. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, there, there could not be two stranger stories for this audience to have heard about prayer. And here's why. The setting of the characters of these stories. It's a widow in a courtroom. It's a tax collector in a temple. Now, if you are the original audience hearing these stories, immediately you would have just been like, what are they doing there? They don't belong there. You guys ever been in those situations in your life when you just show up and you're like, man, I do not belong here. I, I, I remember um, uh, <laughs> I remember when I was in high school, uh, I got invited, invited by my youth pastor to go hunting with him in Wisconsin. And I'm like, yeah, dude, like, let's go hunting, you know, like just little high school grom from San Diego. And, and I show up like in my board shorts and it's like snowing. And I go in this room with all these other guys getting ready to hunt. And they're all like 300 pounds more than me, um, dressed in blaze orange camo gear and comfortably holding a rifle in, 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 like in their lap. And I'm just like, where am I? Like, I do not belong here. And they thought it was funny. They're like, hey, let's go try shooting this gun outside. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And it was like a, like a sawed-off, like, 10, 8-gauge shotgun thing, um, which apparently I think is like a powerful gun. I didn't know that. So I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go shoot the target. <laughs> totally, you know. I don't know how to hold a gun. Okay, so I and so I shoot, and it's uh, such a powerful kick, I just spin around and, like, fall to the ground. And they're all just like, ah, gotcha. And I'm just like, I want to go home. Like, this is just not where I belong. Um, and and that, that same sense, I just can't imagine that as people are hearing this, I'm like, what are these people doing here? Let me explain. The court system of that day 
was built upon a class system. So if you were a male, you had authority in the court. Women was, were not considered uh, honest testimony or worthy testimony in the court. Depending on your social status and your citizenship meant how much freedom you had and then how much money you had largely had to do with how much you could pay the judge to get the verdict you want. So a widow in a court is the last place you'd ever think of finding a widow. She's a woman. She has no way of creating uh, economic uh, streams into her life. She has zero power. And you see this in the story. There's no way, no matter what's been done to her, there's no way justice is coming to this woman because of who she is, not because of what she's done. And Jesus looks at the woman, the widow in the courtroom, at his disciples and says, this is how you should pray. You should approach God with nothing in your pockets. You should approach God without a single sense of your own power, self-righteousness, or authority. But you should enter in to your request with God with a sense of, I have no reason for you to, to answer me, to hear me, but I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking for grace. And in this moment, this wicked, ungodly judge, because of the desperation and the persistence of this widow, grants it. And then Jesus turns and says, God is not an unjust judge. He is a just and giving God. So when you come and approach God, come in that manner that you desperately need grace. You don't, don't come at him with this sense of, hey, Jesus, you better answer my prayer. Because of these things I have stored up, my good works, my church attendance, my bank account, the scriptures I have memorized, the lack of sins that I commit, you should answer me. So don't come like that. Come and, and the only reason that you have an expectation of response is because of grace, the graciousness of God. But the graciousness of God does not give us a lackadaisical posture, but one of desperation. We come and we say, Lord, I need you to show up in my life. We, we, we are a people of resource. The amount of resource we have in this room, financially, relationally, educationally, is, is astounding to the rest of the world. So what do we do when we find in a place of desperation? Well, we turn to a friend, we turn to a parent, we turn to our bank account, we turn to our education. We analyze the situation and come up with a strategy to get us out of it. And then we invite God into the journey with us after we found the solution. God, would you bless the resources I've accumulated to get myself out of this? The widow says, I have nothing. You have to show up for me. You have to show up. And that place draws us, draws us into this intimate place of God, not, again, not as a, an evil judge, but as a loving father. There's nothing I want more for my children than to have a flourishing life. Even when I say no, it is with the love in my heart that I do. And that's from, that's from a flawed human being. How much more can we go and just appeal to the graciousness of God? The second story he tells is, is just as shocking. It's a tax collector in the temple. 
Now, tax collectors weren't allowed in the temple. Because of their interactions with Gentiles, they were consistently, ceremonially unclean. So they weren't allowed to go in. So, they ha- so this tax collector in this story is not said, but it's implied to everyone who knows it. By him being in the temple, he's in the court of the Gentiles. He's not even in the, the holy place. He's not in the place where the Jewish men get to go to where God's presence dwells. He is on the outside, and his Jewish godly men would pray with their eyes towards heaven. He can't even lift his, and he beats his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me. There's nothing I've done that merits you to answer me, to show me kindness, but I am appealing to your mercy Please show up. And Jesus looks at these two men, one who has just a life filled with spiritual performance and one who has done nothing of his own, of, of his own righteousness, anything that has been good. And he says, this guy got it. A widow in a courtroom, a tax collector in a temple, that is how we are to pray. It's coming because in that moment, in that type of conversation, we come completely disarmed and we come with nothing to give and we come with an expectation that God has everything to give that we need. He's our Father. He's the one who who has what we need. This is how the author of Hebrew puts it. When talking about Jesus Coming as, as the one, as our high priest, as the one who intercedes for us. This is how he tells us to approach the throne of God. Which is, that's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? Approaching the throne of God. This is what he says in verse 16 of chapter 4. He says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. With confidence. Are you a widow in a courtroom? Are you a tax collector in a temple? Are you a sinner in a church? Are you a broken person in this world? Approach the throne of God with confidence so that we may receive what? Mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Our confidence cannot lie within our own doing, our own performance, our own self-righteousness, Our confidence has to lie in the gracious mercy of God. And when we understand that, when we can grasp the nature of God as one of mercy and grace, we are welcomed into a different kind of conversation. We know his attitude towards us. We don't have to have prayer anxiety. We don't have to wonder about the outcome because we know his character. We don't have to wonder about our motive because, frankly, it doesn't even matter. We don't have to worry about what his, his, his bent towards us is because we already know through the scripture we can approach a God of grace and mercy with confidence. And our response, our posture towards us as we come into prayer because of his grace and because of his mercy is not only confidence, but it's a sense of, of absolute dependence. Jesus, you're, you're it. You're the judge who can give me justice. You're the God who can give me mercy. You're everything that I need. You're, you're, you're it. My, my guess is that the things you are wrestling with in life, that you've created a narrative in your own imagination, and you said, if I could just get this, I'd be okay. 
If this one problem was fixed, I would be fine. If this one thing could change, then I would be good. But the problem is, is that we are constantly, I love how the, the Bible, biblical authors talk about the, the eye is never satisfied. We're always, something always we want more. And that's because no matter how secure we feel, no matter how much resource we have, we still need God. I mean, just, just and last thing, we've never lived in an age that we have been more independent, autonomous, wealthy, technologically advanced, and we have not stopped praying. Why? Because we, we know that no matter how advanced and progressive we come as humanity, there is something we cannot create for ourselves, and that is grace and mercy. So I would encourage you this week, would this be a week that you make a conscious effort to shift into a rhythm of prayer? Maybe we can take a, um, a lesson from, from the Jewish heritage in which Jesus came from of even having a rhythm of prayer in our day. Set an alarm on your phone every three hours. Whatever you're doing, just stop and have a conversation confidently with a God of grace and mercy. Maybe it just looks like little things. And like I said, wherever you are, stop worrying about what your prayers will get and start, and start longing for what your prayers will do in you, what it will do to your relationship with God. So this is what we're going to do tonight. Um, <laughs> shocker, we're going to pray. Um, I really actually struggled giving this sermon. Um, not, struggle, I struggled with the fact that this sermon is going to work. Uh, because prayer is not something that happens via information. Uh, prayer is something that happens through practice. It's something that happens through de- deliberate intentionality, rhythms set in your life. And, and so the danger is we could hear a sermon on prayer and we could not make a single adjustment in our life. So what we're going to do right now is I'm going to give you a few moments to pray and I want you to do a couple things. Number one, I want you, no matter how you normally approach God, I want you to approach God tonight as a widow in a courtroom, as a tax collector in a temple. And as you approach him, I want you to listen, to see, to sense the presence of God through his grace and mercy. Maybe he'll speak to you. Maybe you'll speak to him. Maybe it'll be some of both. But begin to press in, and, and, but use this moment as, as a template, as an exercise that you'll do tomorrow and the next day and the next day when you wake up, as you go to bed. Um, the Bible multiple times in the New Testament talks about pray consistently. Don't stop. Um, there's some people who talk about even breath prayers, just little prayers. Lord, be with me today. Um, let me know your presence. Let me know your love. Just just bringing that into the rhythm of your life and begin to start seeing what begins to happen in your, your intimacy with God, in your relationship with God.